Have you ever witnessed an absolute miscarriage of justice? Yeah, some of us have. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I have to give some credit. I think as a nation, we've done the, made a lot of attempts at creating a just judi- judicial system, right? But the fact is, it's still really broken and can do incredible injustice at the same time. Uh, I won't go into any detail uh, today. I've, I've told a little, little bit about it in the past, but um, I have a friend with developmental disabilities who ended up in the court system, and we spent about a year in court uh, twice a month. Um, and it was the most unbelievable labyrinth of impossible hoops to jump through. It, it was really tragic and painful uh, to, to walk uh, through that with him. Today we're in uh, the Gospel of John and continuing a series that we've been in for, for quite some time. And we're going to be in John chapters 18 and 19. Uh, and last week, as we spoke, uh, as, as we read from Scripture, uh, we found Jesus uh, betrayed by one of his cl- closest followers, uh, arrested by a mob, uh, and, and, then, uh, and then his followers begin to just fall away, disappear, and even deny knowing him as, uh, as their life might be on the line as well. Today we engage the trial that Jesus went through. Now, remember, uh, we're reading uh, the, the Gospel of John, that is, uh, a man named John, one of Jesus' closest followers, an apostle, a man who walked with Jesus for all the years of his ministry, uh, is telling his story and experience of walking with Jesus, uh, and, and his experience of coming to realize Jesus as the Savior, witnessing his crucifixion, and then seeing him rise from the grave. John tells us this story, and today he digs into the account of, of what's happening both in Israel and in Roman courts as they try to figure out what to do with this man, Jesus. Uh, we're going to read all of the text today. That's a lot of what I want to accomplish today. I want us to hear from John uh, precisely what he experienced and what he interpreted and understood of the events. And so we've got a good bit of reading to do. Uh, I- I'm going to uh, highlight a number of things and come to conclusion in the end, uh, but I want us also just to witness and to listen to, to John's witness, to his story, as to who Jesus is and how the story played out. So we're in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why ask me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So the trial has begun, uh, first with the Jewish leaders uh, questioning Jesus about his teachings. Now, Jesus had been making incredible claims. Uh, understand, he is turning the religious and social systems of Israel on their head. He is describing a kingdom of God that operates entirely different than the nation of, Is- uh, than the nation of Israel is operating in this moment. 
He's been teaching about the importance of love and all of these sorts of things, but none of those really bolster the systems at work in Israel. He's been teaching about God and and inviting people to know God on a more personal level than anyone in Israel could imagine with the temple system and the distance to access God and the priests through which they would have to go. Jesus is speaking in, in, in entirely different terms about what it's like to be in relationship with God. And of course, his boldest claims have to do with his own identity, claiming to be God in human flesh. And in fact, that will come out in our text today. So they begin by questioning him about these teachings that he's been bringing, that they've been hearing from him. And and, and Jesus' response, I think, is kind of witty and snarky, and I appreciate it about him. Um, he, uh, He says, I've been speaking publicly. I'm not hiding my teachings, and if you want to know about them, just ask the people of Israel, because they know what I'm teaching, right? Do, do you hear what's behind that? He's saying, you Pharisees are questioning me on my teachings, but Israel understands. They know what's happening. The people that have been listening know what's happening and what I've been teaching. And so, of course, he's slapped by a man, insulted. Uh, the man lashes out and insults Jesus with a slap, but of course, that's only the beginning. We continue in chapter 18, uh, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, uh, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. But we have no right to execute, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is this your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Uh, I am, a, am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Are you a king then, said Pilate? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify about truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted, no, not him. Give us Barnabas. Now, Barnabas had taken part in an uprising. So, the Jewish leaders arrive at the palace. This is uh, the uh, Roman governor um, who has the authority to have Jesus executed. That, of course, is their goal and has been. John's been telling about the fact that they've been plotting for some time to have Jesus arrested and killed. So now they brought Jesus to the governor's palace. And uh, there's this 
interesting little quirky thing that I think it's easy, easy to miss in there. Um, they wouldn't enter the Roman governor's palace because they were afraid it would make them unclean and they'd be unable to continue in the week's Passover feasts and all the things taking place that week. The great irony is that while they're afraid of being unclean to participate in Passover, Jesus, the Passover lamb, is being set up to be executed. Right? They stand here uh, really careful not to break the law as it relates to, to Passover, and yet they're in the process of manipulating the court systems to have Jesus, the Passover lamb, executed. I love the way John writes and some of the nuances to what he does in here and, and, the, and the details that he includes that we might see uh, both the absurdity uh, and the magnitude of what's taking place in this moment. So Jesus begins to engage in conversation with Pilate, this, this Roman uh, governor. Uh, are you a king, Pilate asks. Well, Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. I think this is a really interesting statement. My kingdom's not of this world, and yet his kingdom is in this world. We read throughout the gospel narratives and the first century authors that wrote these, uh, these letters that we read in our Bible, and we read about this, uh, this understanding that Jesus' kingdom, Jesus is ushering the kingdom of God into this world. And so throughout his ministry, Jesus is teaching about this kingdom of God. He often use, uses par- parables to describe what this kingdom of heaven is like. So Jesus here questioned, are you a king? Jesus says, well, my kingdom's not of this world. What he doesn't say in this moment is, yet my kingdom is in this world. My kingdom has begun. And it's one of the really rich and beautiful things that we, uh, 2,000 years later, are invited to participate in. To recognize that wherever we live on, in this world, there's absolute equality and opportunity and invitation in God that we would be citizens of a kingdom not of this world, but that is in this world. That we would get to lean into the way of God and the work of God that he is doing in this world here and now. So Jesus is discussing with the governor his kingship. Uh, Pilate goes out to the Jews and he says, hey, I see no grounds for charges against this man. Uh, So he says to them, how about if we use that get out of jail free card? Uh, Because apparently it was a tradition that every year at Passover, one of Israel's greatest feasts of of the year, uh, that the governors of Rome or that Rome would release a prisoner kind of as an act of, you know, uh, we're we're here for you, right? Like like governments would do. So how about if we use that get-out-of-jail-free card on Jesus, the king of the Jews, as he's being titled in this moment? And of course, the Israelites are intent upon his execution, and so they cry out, no, don't release Jesus. Pilate, I don't see any grounds for charges against this man, but they say, no, we want Barabbas, uh, a man participating in uprisings, likely against Rome. You can kind of understand why they'd want him, but certainly not in contrast to Jesus of all people, right? No, crucify him. We don't want him back. The story continues in chapter 19, then, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him on the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. 
When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do, where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king uh, opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, crucify him. Take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. We see a number of characters in this text. We've already looked a little bit at the... Um, the religious leaders in Israel. Uh, we now see a little bit of Pilate, uh, a little bit. I, I, I struggle to understand exactly who Pilate is in this moment and, and from, from what he's operating out of. Um, historical documents tell of a Pilate who loved to stoke his own ego and wield his power. Um, and I think we see a little bit of that in here, making a mockery of Jesus, uh, calling him over and over the king of the Jews while he puts a crown of thorns on his head and leads him in front of his people, right? We see him wielding that power, stoking his own ego in this. We see the guards slapping and, and taunting Jesus. But the character of Jesus is the one that, that really strikes me in the text in this moment, willing to endure the shame of this moment. Because as much pain there might be at this point, it's the shame that they're really pouring on in this moment. Now, the natural human response to being shamed is that we heap shame on someone else, right? We deflect it, and we push it away, and we get angry. But Jesus doesn't demonstrate any of that. Instead, instead Jesus takes on the shame of the moment. And what's fascinating is to consider what happens next on the cross. And in fact, next week when we look at crucifixion, we're going to talk about kind of atonement theory. What exactly is happening on the cross, right? How do we understand what takes place on that cross on a, on a spiritual level, right? What, what is Jesus actually accomplishing on the cross? But we catch a glimpse of one of the aspects of what's happening on the cross, that Jesus would take not only the shame heaped on him in this moment, but he would take the shame of the world. That you and my shame, that whatever we carry is no longer our own because Jesus is willing to take all of that on. Pilate again says, I see no basis for a charge against him, but Israel cries, crucify him. Pilate says, why don't you just do it yourself? And 
there's a bit of a problem here. You see, under Israelite law, anyone that claimed to be God and made this divinity claim that Jesus is making uh, would be put to death. But apparently, scholars debate somewhere between 4 AD and Jesus here at about 30, 33 AD, somewhere between 4 and 30 AD, uh, Rome had revoked Israel's right to execute people under their own court system. So apparently, uh, we have uh, Israel now having to manipulate Roman courts to dispose of Jesus, right? And and so that's what we're reading about. Verse 12, uh, there's this fascinating statement. Well, Israel is intent on using Roman courts to have Jesus executed. Pilate is, in fact, trying to set Jesus free. The Jews argue, hey, Pilate, you are against Caesar if you let this man who claims to be a king continue to live. He asks them, do you want to crucify your king? I think that's a fascinating question. A Roman official who could care less about Jesus or the Jewish people in this text, probably truly baffled. Are you seriously trying to kill your king in this moment? You see, no one really believes Jesus is a king. It's kind of all a show. I don't think Pilate believed much of it. Israel certainly isn't receiving Jesus as the king. Each of them wants to further their individual causes. You can see how Pilate wants to continue to wield his power, how he has to be careful not to upset Rome. Pilate's really just worried about himself in this moment, right? You see Israel, you see the, the, the Jewish leaders in this moment concerned only about their own agenda and clinging to the power that they have in Israel in this moment. And their response is telling, we have no king but Caesar. If you know much about Israel, if you know much about the story of God and his love and faithfulness to the Israelite people, this is a tragic moment in the story where Israel, who is desperate for a new king, uh, there's these prophecies and they know a king is coming in the line of David, will be restored, right? We'll be our own nation again. Israel, desperate for a king, so hates Jesus in this moment that they say, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar's our king. Do you see how it's turned just 180 degrees? They've entirely lost sight of what God has done and what God is intending to do in the life of Israel and in the world, and so they are committed. We have no king except for Caesar. And so Pilate condemns Jesus to be crucified. I want to start to move out of this particular text and look at just two others as we conclude here today. Um, As we consider this, I I spent some time this week asking, so, you know, what does this text have for us? A large share, like I mentioned in the beginning of what I want to do today, is just hear John's account of of how this trial went down. But surely it has some sort of application and, 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 and place in our lives here today. And what I was struck by was, uh, aside from Jesus, everyone is pursuing their own interests, their personal interests. Does it sound familiar to you? When you look around the world, when you look at your workplace or the way we govern or the way we uh, set up our cities and social programs, does it seem shocking that people would be interested only in their personal interests? Of course not. It's kind of human nature. It's kind of the way that we operate. And so I'm asking my question, myself this question this week and this morning. What does it look like to be engaged in interests other than our own? 
to, to, to shift our gaze away from what is best for me, what do I want, what do I need in this moment, and then manipulate anything and everything around us to accomplish what we think that we need. What does it look like to turn our gaze outward? And I'm going to propose two things. First of all, our gaze goes towards God and his intent in this world. And secondly, our gaze goes away from our own interests and towards the interests of others. So let's look at two little passages. As we consider shifting our attention from our own interests to those of God, uh, I was drawn to Jesus uh, teaching his disciples to pray. Probably a pretty good example of the heart of God. As Jesus says, these are the things that you might be praying for in this world. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning, beginning in verse 9, we read Jesus' prayer. And again, we're listening to this uh, with the heart of what does God want our interests focused on? What does he want our attention focused on in this world? He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, there is a personal request in this text here. Jesus does teach to pray for yourself, and we're trying to combat this idea of looking out for our own interests over all else. And so I think Jesus' prayer actually validates that idea, as the request here for our personal things is just the necessities, the bare minimum, right? But there's so much more to the prayer. His prayer is that God's name would be known and holy in the earth. His prayer is that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done, not just in heaven, but right here on earth, here and now. We begin to focus our gaze away from ourselves and towards God's will. And it has to do with forgiving others as God has forgiven us. And it has to do with putting off temptation and being delivered from evil that we might get to walk in the ways of God in this world. May we be a people that consider others, that consider God, and then consider the interests of others even over our own. Philippians 2, the author uh, writes beautifully about this very concept. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with, with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality something, uh, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, becoming made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He begins here, uh, if you've experienced any of this comfort and love that God lavishes on us, if you've received the Spirit, if you've known God's tenderness and compassion, then. I was reflecting this week in this text on... Um, Early in my high school years, uh, just went, went off the rails. I'd grown up in the church. I knew God as a child, but 
early in my high school years, uh, I went my own way and it became incredibly destructive to myself and to people around me. And, um, as, as it escalated, uh, finally a friend from childhood called my parents and told them everything that was going on. And, you know, life came crashing down around me. And what was fascinating was in the weeks and months to come, like as a child, I could define grace or or I could probably tell you in some terms what love meant. But man, when I experienced grace and love from God and from family and from friends, it set my life in a whole new direction. And that's what he's describing here. And each of us probably has a different story. God's encountered us in a slightly different way, slightly different circumstances. But many of us here have experienced God's love, right? God's compassion, God's care for us. And the author in this text says, so take that experience and propel it into something, into something particular. He says, take that experience of having received God's love and compassion and allow it to shape your life in a way that you can demonstrate love and compassion to other people. He says, don't be so concerned with your own interests, but instead look to the interests of other people. And we have an example. Even in our text today in John, we saw Jesus' example, taking on the shame himself, as opposed to projecting it upon the wicked things happening around him. He says, follow Jesus' example, who being in very nature God, didn't cling to it, didn't use it to his own advantage, but instead he gave himself in a sacrificial manner. So that's my challenge for us today. I think the challenge that comes out in this text as we contrast the characters of Roman officials, of Jewish leaders, and of course, Jesus. What does it look like in our lives to follow in the way of Jesus? Well, in the text today, we find this example. Uh, We look to the interests of others. We look to the interests of God. We uh, de- No, how do I say this? We live lives so convinced that we know what we need and what's best. We live so much of our lives in pursuit of what we want. And the invitation today is to follow in the example of Jesus. That is one of seeing other people and then engaging for the betterment, for the sake of other people in our lives. Let's pray about that as we close out today. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to be together. Um, And as we look at the tragedy and the hurt and the horror of uh, the trial that will soon see Jesus on a cross, uh, God, I pray that um, you will just sober us, that we might kind of experience and understand uh, the evil taking place there and even the evil that, that persists in the world today. Um, and God, as we, as we rest in and realize uh, all the evil in the text, may we also just be amazed by your character, God, by your character, Jesus, as you demonstrate what it is to love to the extent that you would sacrifice. Um, God, we pray that you will help us to follow in, in those footsteps, that we might learn to love and to sacrifice, to give, to see others, and engage on their behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.